Welcome to Anthropod. I'm Chelsea Yunpandre, and I'll be your host today on this episode on children in the time of coronavirus. I'm speaking with Jean Hunlith, the author of Children as Caregivers and a medical anthropologist at Washington University in St. Louis. Jean's work on Zambia focuses on tuberculosis during the AIDS epidemic, foregrounding children and the care work that they provide for sick relatives. Emphasizing children's experience of illness, Jean not only draws attention to young people's agency and vulnerabilities when surrounded by infectious disease, but she also shows us how focusing on children's perspectives urges us to rethink illness, the public health measures that are aimed at managing it, and the social impact of the disease in our lives. Rereading children as caregivers in what's now our fifth week of lockdown, Jean's words took on new significance. In the past few weeks, the news has given us all a sort of crash course in epidemiology, and we've picked up pieces of healthcare workers' specialized vocabulary. So concepts like incubation period, PPE, and vents are now shaping our visions of current events and the influence that the pandemic will have on our lives and those of our research participants in the future. So much of what we read about this pandemic emphasizes all the ways in which this event is unprecedented. But in addition to making the familiar strange, as anthropologists, we're also skilled at finding continuity in contexts of change and vice versa. So in our conversation, I asked Jean how her work might help us think through the coronavirus, both the ways that the pandemic is impacting our field sites or what we know of them through WhatsApp check-ins and media reports, but also how can the perspective of children in Zambia help us to think about our own experiences of the pandemic? So now I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about your work on tuberculosis in Zambia. Yeah, thanks. So I first went to Zambia in 1999 as a Peace Corps volunteer, and then stayed for a while after that to serve in a more supervisory role in Peace Corps and in program management at the UN World Food Program. But this time period that I was there in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was a very particular moment in Zambia's history when there was no widely available ARVs, antiretroviral treatment for HIV and when uh, because of the HIV epidemic, TB rates had grown exponentially from what they had been before the epidemic. And at the same time, international policies had really gutted the healthcare system um, and it was hard to deal with the dual epidemics. Also in the late 90s, Zambia's national TB and leprosy program had lost its external funding and the country ran out of TB medication. So Hmm. that's all to say that I had gotten there at a time when I wasn't working on TB, but it was impossible not to witness the effects of TB on the healthcare system and on families, and including families that I lived with as a Peace Corps volunteer and had also gotten close to during those years. So I was very attuned to the effects of tuberculosis in the country prior to actually studying it. My book, Children as Caregivers, picks up at a different point in Zambia's history. It's slightly later. I carried out the research for that between around 2004 to 2014, but really most intensively, um, as you see in the book, during 2007 and 2008. So during that time period, HIV, it was a very particular moment in the country. HIV and TB treatments were becoming a more regular presence throughout the country due to some pretty significant shifts. There was 
the large scale rollout of no cost antiretrovirals for HIV, which was happening around the world and in Zambia. And there was in Zambia recommitment to TB treatment, which was reshaping the way treatment was given. And the global health funding streams for tuberculosis were expanding and changing Mm -hmm. substantially. And new people like the Gates Foundation were getting involved in TB prevention and control. But what I'd say has really tied my interest through those years of Peace Corps and the writing of children as caregivers, and even now, uh, is my interest in learning how children experience and manage health within specific socio-political contexts. Mm. And my concern with how children's actions and meaning making are largely ignored in health programming. Mm. So I think TB is a specifically interesting case for that. Um, And as I try to show in children as caregivers, uh, there's a lot at stake in ignoring children, even in epidemics where the largest number of sufferers are adults as in tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And COVID-19. And COVID-19, right, exactly. So from there, I wanted to ask you if you can describe the TB outbreak that you were watching in Zambia relative to what we're seeing in with the coronavirus right now. So they're obviously very, very different diseases, but I'm wondering how this comparison might help us think through some of the social dimensions of the current pandemic. Right, yes. I mean, they're obviously different in many respects, clearly, but there are a lot of striking similarities. They're both spread through the air, most Mm. basically. And so the advice on limiting proximity to people who have active TB disease or COVID-19 have been very similar. Um, The concerns with limiting proximity to people who may have active TB disease or COVID-19 are also similar. I think what also is similar to me in thinking about it is the real need for widespread testing to Mm. limit the spread of both of them. Uh, That's very similar, and we're hearing lots on the need for testing and also a lot of the frustrations on the ability not to get tested. And that was something certainly I was seeing in the tuberculosis epidemic in Zambia, the inavailability and inaccessibility of of testing sites. And even when a person assumed that they might have TB because other people in their family had TB, the inability to get tested for it. So that's very similar. And we're seeing a lack of widespread testing here. Certainly in in St. Louis, um, the testing sites had been skewed or have been skewed to particular neighborhoods Mm -hmm. as well. There's so many similarities. I guess I'd I'd mention a couple more. The the early messaging of anybody can get the disease, the disease doesn't discriminate, has been very similar too to TB and also HIV. Hmm. And it's true that no one is immune, but this messaging really is erasing the social determinants of health and Mm -hmm. the injustices that shape exposure, that shape access to healthcare and how medical professionals treat particular persons once they are in the medical system Mm -hmm. or once they come or the histories of how people have been treated. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen the spare out in St. Louis with the COVID-19 deaths here in relation to TB. I, you know, I think it's widely known that the largest burdens of the disease are in high density neighborhoods in low, low income areas in, um, in particular countries. We don't see TB really here in the U S anymore though. Mm -hmm. It had been here. 
And these are places where people do not have the means to adequately protect themselves from exposure and where, you know, as we say, the staff stuff and systems to manage the disease aren't sufficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are similar. And then, you know, the discourses, I mean, we're anthropologists of childhood, right? Uh, you and I. So mm-hmm. I see some very similar discourses around the discussion around children. And mm-hmm. and we mentioned, you mentioned before, you know, COVID-19 and TB are affecting older age groups um, much more than children. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's this other narrative of children as carriers or vectors, but not mm-hmm. as sufferers. I think that's, you know, that's a little harmful in many respects. One, one in that it, it makes us not attuned to when children are sufferers of yeah. these disease and how that's happening and their treatment. And then seeing children as carriers or vectors is just really disturbing to me because it's reductionistic <laughs> and it takes attention away from how they're humans, too, who experience the disease. hmm Your work foregrounds children's caregiving activities that are often overlooked in scholarship, but in the case of coronavirus, our vision of what kids' care work, what kind of care work they're doing is really difficult to access right now. But I'm wondering how this perspective has kind of shaped what you've been reading, what you've seen, and where are you seeing children's caregiving activities right now? Chelsea, I see children's caregiving everywhere, to be honest, (laughs) not just in COVID-19. It's it's all over the place. But I'd say this is also true of TB as well. Children's care work is extremely hard to access because children are typically not giving care in hospitals or in public spaces where we can see it, though though we know that they do. There's work on um, children as language translators in hospitals Mm -hmm. and stuff for parents, but, but most of the care work is all care work happens in, in homes away from public view. And so it's hard to access, but for children in particular, we have this view of how care happens or ought to happen that shapes our ability to see children's caregiving. I believe mm-hmm. yeah. I would say that, especially here in the U S um, though also in Zambia, the predominant assumption was that when children give care, they're not receiving it. Hmm. And so it's, it's really, I find even proposing the idea of studying children's caregiving gets really dicey here mm-hmm. um, because children who give care are seen as, as victims and, and something that we need to stop, where I would argue that all children are giving care and there are certain types of caregiving that children are giving where they need much more support in those situations. But also there is, you know, care. I see care. My own son, who's four, giving me care Mm -hmm. um, in ways that that I don't think are problematic at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like children giving care doesn't necessarily mean that parents are being negligent or that they're not being cared for, but that it can, they coexist. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the problem too. You know, we feel very guilty as parents when we see children giving care as well. And and parents are blamed for everything, right? (laughs) So as I was reading children as caregivers in the midst of this pandemic, it was almost eerie how many of your observations appeared to directly relevant to the current context. So maybe the most striking was your emphasis on being closer. So you describe it as, quote, one of the central paradoxes of infectious disease, saying that transmissibility creates conditions in which proximity is desired and necessary, but also feared. 
So can you speak a little bit about this theme of wanting to be closer, how it emerged in your work in Zambia? And can you talk about it as compared to this kind of desire and fear of being closer that we're seeing everywhere in the case of COVID-19 and the kind of global lockdowns relative to the disease? Yeah, being closer. I talk about that throughout the book, but specifically in the introduction. And I was really struck during my research with the phrasing of wanting to be closer and and the continual answer to my question about what had changed in the children's lives or in their, their family members' lives because of illness in the household or because of TB. At first, I really thought that I was being a bad ethnographer, really. I'm like, oh, I'm asking bad questions. I keep getting these vague answers. (laughs) I need to be more specific. But I think what I really learned was that, well, one, I had assumptions going into how people would answer that. And and to being closer was really kind of at the heart of it. I I use being closer to get into all kinds of things in the book. Um, So just to clarify, when you were asking what had changed about children's lives since when there was TB in their house, what did they say about being closer? No, that was the answer. The answer is what? I just wanted, I I wanted, I want, I was always close. I wanted to be closer. I want to be Mm. closer or talk to parents like, how has your child's life changed? Well, she wants to be closer to me physically, but I think also emotionally and, and socially closer mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. It was one of those recurrent themes in ethnographic fieldwork that that is just you know, vexes you and is hard to understand, mm-hmm. but then becomes more evident the longer you're there. Uh, and particularly through watching children trying to get close in many ways, mm-hmm. including in when they were separated, running away from the house they were were um, separated into or their attempts to kind of get the attention or, or be able to remain in a household. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trying to stay close to their parents despite the yeah. disease, yeah. I link that also to global discourses on childhood, too, in the book that had really come in to the area where I worked on you know, children whose parents die or their social parents who die um, become street children and then they become orphans. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the children were really aware of these discourses and they certainly, in my opinion, shaped their actions and and how they attempted to remain socially relevant Mm -hmm. within their households. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So being closer is also just being seen. Yes. Being seen, being loved. And I was, I was, struck by how that seems there seems to be a parallel in what we're hearing about the way that kids are responding to COVID-19 and how kids they're not separated from from parents necessarily who have the disease but just being in this lockdown condition creates this they're almost drawn to being with their parents you hear about kids going into their parents beds at night and things like that Um, so I thought that that was a really interesting parallel between what you were hearing from kids in Zambia who wanted to be close to their parents, but also kids now in the lockdown. I see this in my own house. You know, my son who wants, who comes into our bed and who wants to be with me all the time. And, and on social media, you hear parents saying that their, their children are spending more time with them. The lessons I would take from my work is that these are attempts, one, to be seen and 
because of the uncertainty and also to be able to communicate about what's going on as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it can be hard for parents because we're with them more than ever before in a lot of ways since schools are closed. We're with them kind of all day, every day. And yet they really need some, some focused attention. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All the time. So the second thing I wanted to ask about is just the title of your book. So Children as Caregivers. You speak a lot about the subtle actions that you characterize as care, but that would go overlooked in most analyses of children's role in managing illness. And I wanted you to speak a little bit about what you describe as care, and and especially the concept of imaginal caring that you develop in your recent article in Cultural Anthropology. Right. I see care much more broadly than I think, especially children's care, much more broadly than I think it's been conceptualized in the, at least the child care literature. And one of the aspects to return to being closer um, of children's care that I was really seeing was the watchfulness of being close to know when to take care. So the flexibility mm-hmm. of like of children's care and trying to identify what people need, but through proximity, through being close and, and observing them very uh, carefully. Mm-hmm. And the worry that adults and other doctors wouldn't be doing it the way that they would be doing it if they were with their parents, right? Absolutely. And, and children typically have more ability to do this than adult caregivers who are also going to work or going out to do certain things. Hmm. Um, imaginal caring is something that took me a long time to get to and, and as, as obvious and that I just published it this past year in my cultural anthropology article. And that was really my grappling with what children were doing with fantasy Mm -hmm. and with image and how that related to care. So particularly during times of separation from people or when times of, and I'm not talking just separation into the hospital, which certainly I saw a lot of more caring through fantasy when children's loved ones were hospitalized, but Mm -hmm. also through other separations. Like typically the children in the area where I worked would sleep in the same bed as their caregivers or guardians. Mm -hmm. And this was due both to need because housing was very limited, but it also was really hard on the children when they were kicked out of beds because of the disease and, Mm -hmm. and the loved one not wanting to spread it to them. And so there were other subtle separations within the household. And so children had to get creative of ways that to find ways to show their love and their care for people when they couldn't do it in the typical ways. And I really talk in that article about how children were giving care through their drawings. Mm. I drawing was one of one of one of many methods that I used to understand how children were envisioning their lives. And I was really struck by what children were drawing for others and how they were drawing this in the presence of others in ways that were really meant to help those people recover. So just to give a concrete example, like drawings of an orange on a page and the explicit desire and and saying that you're, that they were giving that orange to the person who was sick Mm -hmm. to help them. 
What were some other things that they drew to as part of what you say is imaginal caring? I start that article with a young boy who I call Gift um, drawing himself flying into the hospital to get his baby sister and carrying her out on a balloon to bring her back so that he could be in close proximity, watch her, watch what she needed. And then he was fighting off a snake, envisioning of how he was going to care for her in the future. And he drew this at a time when his sister was hospitalized for TB, but also when his grandmother, who was his primary caregiver, had just been diagnosed with and was, was, and they had just, he had just moved with her Hmm. to my research site to, to get better care for her TB. And he drew this in, in the presence of her too. Hmm. And so there was a lot that was kind of going on in that communication. We were, when he was drawing this, I was talking specifically with, with his grandmother about her trajectory of of getting diagnosed and deciding that she needed to get care in the city and coming to the city with gift. Mm -hmm. So aspects like that, there's, uh, I talk about the airplanes that some boys in the study were, um, I hear, I hear somebody in the background. (laughs) You hear my daughter in the background. So that's part of, (laughs) part of working Uh, in times of coronavirus with children. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) My guy has been, very quiet. <laughs> um, the trying to get your attention, right? When yeah. your attention is on other things. Yeah. So the image, the image of the airplane is, is also one that I talk about in that article where, who I call Paul, he drew his, um, he drew an airplane uh, that he was going to fly as he, when he got older and part of his drawing of, of giving care. And he did this in the presence of his father and it really was in the, and this, this airplane recurred in his drawings and his brother's drawings. Mm. And as I kind of analyze, interpret that, it really was an attempt to give his father hope for the future. His father was really losing hope. His father has died now and TB, the TB was disease was really hard on his father and taking the medicine was really hard on his father and, and they were doing all sorts of things to kind of keep up his hope for the future and including like kind of insisting that he took his medicine but also I really see these drawings as entering into that effort to help him reimagine what hmm. a future could look like without TB in a way that he was showing, I will care for you in the future because I'm going to get us out of poverty. I'm going to be a pilot, fly for Zambia Airways, and this is my airplane, and these are my dreams, and I still have them. And we should say that you've made these drawings of ch- that children did for you available online. I have, yes. And in fact, I came to Imaginal Care through that online project. I had been interested in, in fantasy, but I also didn't know how to talk about it mm-hmm. because we're still trying to like get our handle on children's caregiving and in very kind of material ways, although I think that imaginal caring is a very material way, but in things like, you know, sweeping the house, cooking, nursing, and stuff like that. And it's really hard to figure out how those fantasies fit into that vision, how to write about them. And so when I was, I had um, promised an online gallery in the book, so I had to do it. I, I put the link in the book as it was going to press and I immediately regretted it. Um, no, I, I didn't regret it. I'm, I'm very happy that I did it, but it was an 
extremely large amount of work. So I had to go through all of the drawings. I didn't know how I was going to put them online. And I started noticing all of the fantasies in there. And that's what led to the article. But the online gallery, how I decided to do it, was set it up as the story of the book through the children's drawing. So basically, I went through the book and I have page numbers associated with the drawings, even if they're not mentioned on the page, which most of the time they aren't. And so my hope is that you could read through that online gallery and get a sense of what the book is like through the children's drawings, a different sense, Mm -hmm. a very different sense. I'd be interested in kind of those dual readings of it, Mm -hmm. but uh, that's my hope for that gallery. So I want to loop back to a theme that you mentioned earlier, talking about the ways that we interpret kids' care and the kind of guilt that parents might be feeling. And I want to relate that to what you were just saying about imaginal caring. So you just mentioned how they're trying to kind of encourage their parents. They're trying to actually give care to their parents through a drawing. And so by redefining something that we might otherwise analyze in terms of fantasy or play, by redefining it as care, you're talking about how they're doing something for the parents, but you also develop how what it's doing for the children. And so I'm wondering about if you could elaborate a little bit on that piece of your argument and then relate that to the ways that we're seeing our kids worry and the way that our kids are kind of anxiously watching us and noticing our stress and how we might be able to gain a different perspective if we think about that in the terms of care that you've introduced. The first part just being, um, what does it do for kids to be engaging in this this type of care? Right. I think it's really important for them to be helping in certain ways, to be caring in, in ways. And so in that article, I talk about the imaginal caring, as I would say, any caring. It's not selfless. You know, it's it's aimed at another, but also it's for, it's for the children in a way that... In many different respects, and I think those would vary depending on the situation. In terms of Zambia, it was really trying to remain socially relevant and mm-hmm. also working through what was going on. And so as the kids are working through what's going on through these acts of care, how does that maybe help us think about when we see kids anxiously looking at us when we're think, talking about the coronavirus and talking about the kinds of um, the way that lockdown has changed our lives and things like that. I think we need to release some of our guilt, you know, as well. Let me, let me give a story about you know, some imaginal caring that my son gave to me and maybe we can think through it through that story. I was talking about imaginal care with another class that had read my article a couple weeks ago. So we were already in stay at home club courses were already online and cultural anthropology developed a really nice resource for reading my paper, which is called drawing care with Jean Hunleth. And we had planned on the instructor and I had planned on me coming to the class and doing these exercises. And I was really excited about something more interactive and drawing based with the students and I was trying to figure out how to move that online and what I decided to do was Linda Berry's six minute diary have you heard of this Chelsea it's six minutes where you divide a piece of paper into four sections and you write write and draw about what happened yesterday so Uh it was 
in the fourth section is what happened, what did you see, and what did you overhear being said, and then a picture of yesterday, mm -hmm. draw a picture of yesterday. And so I did this with them at the beginning of the class, and I didn't know what I was going to write or, or draw, and I ended up drawing a picture of my parents' house and me outside of it at my car the day before I had bought some groceries. I had gone grocery shopping and gotten groceries for my parents who are 87 and 82. Mm -hmm and are not going out. And I was really kind of excited about seeing them through the window and I wanted to see them through the window and I dropped it off and I was peeking around and I couldn't see them. And so the drawing I had made was me standing out kind of sad um, mm -hmm. at my car, looking, like, looking up at their house. And the next day, my son Max came into my office and he saw that it was still on my desk and he asked about it. And I said, well, this is when I went to grandma and grandpa's house and I dropped off their groceries and I was trying to look in their window and I was kind of sad because I couldn't see them and I couldn't go in. He asked me to draw himself going in the front door mm. of that, of their house. And so I did that and he said, draw, draw yourself, like to draw mommy and daddy going in the side door, which is the door we always go in. And he was like, because you guys are too big, you break the front door, which, you know, clearly would. And then he took it. And because it was like my work time, he took it down to my husband and, and told him to put it on the refrigerator. And he returned throughout the day to that drawing and to talk about it with me. And then at one point, kind of out of the blue, he was like, can we draw ourselves going into grandma and grandpa's house? And can we draw grandma and grandpa inside of it? You know, there's part of me as a parent that that wants to be like, oh, God, you know, right. like, what yeah. am I doing? But there's the other part that was like, oh, he's actually I think he's giving me care and I need to accept that care. Also use this. This visual became a really important thing in our household for kind of talking through what was going on in our feelings of wanting to get close mm -hmm. to people that we were separated from. Mm -hmm. It helped us move through it a yeah. bit yeah. at that moment. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what images can do for, for us and, and between children and, and their parenting family members. Yeah, in your article and in your book, you, you do a really good job of, you have a quote that says, constraint and separation demand creativity. You do a really great job of showing how kids have agency, of course, but they also have limited agency. And with this limited agency, it pushes them to use very creative ways to connect and creative ways to care for those around them. And if we're attuned to it, we can see that all around us now. Mm. I think about our walks around our neighborhood and I've been obsessively taking pictures of all of the chalk drawings oh, yeah. um, that are throughout and the chalk messages, you know, I've seen such you know, touching messages to people that I don't know what they live in the house or, or what, but you know, a happy anniversary or, and, and who knows if a child did it, an adult could have done it too. But, but that's the thing about imaginal caring. I don't think it's limited to children or I love you. I miss you. Grandma and grandpa was one that I saw. Yeah. So that brings me to the question of how and how much we are or should be talking to children about the virus. So now there's tons of resources online guiding adults and how to talk to their children about the virus and these all kind of treat disclosure as a single act like a discussion in which adults impart information on children you argue that this can kind of obscure the many ways of knowing and communicating about illness 
So you advocate for an extreme broadening of definitions of disclosure. So could you elaborate a little bit on that? And and I wanted to think about how that might apply to the ways that we're talking to kids about COVID-19 right now. Right. I think we put so much emphasis on disclosure as an event or Mm. disclosure as a person telling to another. When I really think that disclosure happens or communication about things like TB or COVID-19 really happen in small acts in the daily ways that we communicate rather than kind of a sitting down and saying, you know, there is this disease and it does this and this and this. Now there's a place for that mm-hmm. in, in certain respects, but in my work in Zambia, I was really struck by, and I guess surprised, but not surprised when I started working the households and introducing my research and the enthusiasm, interest in my research among adults, but also the wariness of what my presence would mean in Mm. terms of me disclosing to children that they were suffering from tuberculosis and by relation, really HIV, though not every, I didn't ask about HIV in my study. That wasn't part of it. It's assumed often socially that a person with TB has HIV and Mm. people go to lengths to show that they don't or to avoid discussing TB because the social assumption is is that you have HIV. So these two are highly linked. So I was given the green light to talk to children and see if they were interested in the study, but told not to talk about it in terms of TB. So it, it, it already became a point of interest in, in how this community to me and how this communication was happening now because the children t- they hadn't told the children that their it, relatives well, had TB. It, it's very confusing Chelsea it's it's, <laughs> it's because I I took notes and at, at certain times people would say that they had disclosed and then later said that they had not disclosed or said hmm. they had not disclosed you know so it was really hard to know. And I think that's the thing about disclosure too, because it's not necessarily a sitting down. And so you can disclose and not disclose all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was very confusing and the children were not going to mention TV in the households. And I remember it being kind of a point of, Oh my goodness, I'm studying, I'm studying TV and, and I can't, I, I'm not talking about it. I have no idea what the children think about TV or, or know about TV. But then, you know, kind of paying attention to all the other ways of communicating showed that disclosure, non-disclosure, whatever we want to talk about it, disclosure doesn't mean communication is happening and mm-hmm. non-disclosure doesn't mean it's not. And so I was really carefully looking to all the ways that children and adults were actually communicating about disease, which was through material objects often, through changes, talking through changes. What do you mean by uh, communicating through material objects? Oh, so like, yeah, good point. Through medicines. I mean, medicines weren't Mm. hidden um, for TB. They were a large part of the family's life because medicines had to be taken every day. Mm -hmm. They were a way of talking about illness without in a way that was encouraging rather than discouraging because saying someone has TB could be very discouraging to them because it has connotations of of death and social isolation. But taking medicine on the other hand has, is, is associated often, especially by the children with recovery and Mm -hmm. positive action, positive action and and kind of control Mm -hmm. of 
what's going on. So through talking about the medicines, through talking about foods and special foods, mm-hmm. there's a lot of food talk in relation to illness. So I thought what you said was about it being really discouraging for for kids and for adults is really interesting. And I liked um, the concept you were discussing about thinking too much, about how people in Zambia worried that both children and adults, if we speak too explicitly about this disease, it'll make them think too much about it. And that can make them lose hope and feel isolated. And I thought that was really interesting relative to a struggle that I have in terms of COVID-19. And I think a lot of people share in terms of how much to inform ourselves and when it becomes obsessing over the statistics or the most recent articles, etc. So can you speak a little bit about this idea of thinking too much and the ways that people understood disclosure relative to how people are thinking about the disease and what's healthy and what's not going to be a helpful way to think about the disease? That's such a fascinating question. I, too, struggle with that. (laughs) It seems to me that what you're asking is really how do we communicate about hard things with one another particularly across generations in ways that help us move through the experience and not get stuck in it or get ourselves stuck in it or get other people stuck in it and particularly not our children. Right. So, so first thing that you mentioned was this whole thing has made many of us consider how to manage our information and how we're not managing our information, how we should manage our information. And I agree fully with you that it's so hard to know when we're informing ourselves versus obsessing, it's, you're right, the line is so blurry. The information changes so rapidly. Things put out just a day or hours before can feel really out of date. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to figure, I haven't figured that out. And I, <laughs> some days I obsess over the information, just like scroll through Twitter. Other days I really ignore it. But the other part of your question, which I think is really interesting and related to my book and, and my interest, and I think it's really critical, is how do we incorporate the information we're receiving into our relationships? Mm. And knowing that it has an effect on us and that it will have an effect on others, especially in terms of children, thinking about how, communicating with children, this gets even harder because it's not always easy to identify what they already know or need. Children aren't going to say what they know or need all the time. You know, mm. We have to look between the lines for that. And we often, as adults, assume that children know less than they do um, when they know a lot or that what children need is different than what they actually do need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of that great point you make about how kids are agents, but they're not super agents. We are wise to remember, you say, and then, but none of us are. And I think that that's a really beautiful line because kids, we don't know how much to tell them or how much to disclose, but that's also part because adults are also navigating these same questions right now. And it's not obvious for anybody. So thinking about what kids know and need is that much more complex when we're trying to understand what we know and need and need to know. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. So, so then from these questions of disclosure and adult guilt, I wanted to ask you about the moral discourses and the ways that these are shaping our visions of illness and where we place blame So in my work, I think about economic moralities in Senegalese families, so the ways that moral discourses are shaping intergenerational reciprocity, and how somewhat paradoxically, 
discourses of value can kind of increase exclusion and reinforce inequalities even within families. So then these moral discourses, I'm, I saw in your work a kind of similar theme, especially when you're talking about the narratives that you encounter in Zambia of a breakdown of a moral order. And so I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that and how this moral language shaped the way that we place disproportionate blame on certain people in society. I think if you look at the numbers epidemiologically, the TB rates were pretty steady for decades, about 90 persons per 100,000. And then in the 80s, there's just this exponential rise Hmm. where in a place like George, where I did my research, where the book is based, there were no good estimates, but the estimate was that at the time that I was doing the work was that it was 800 in 100,000. So that's way more than than what was the official Zambia-wide one, but that speaks to the inequities and injustices in the area. So people were really grappling with why, like why has this rise in disease happen and why are people dying more and that Mm was the 80s were a time when hiv came in and hiv weakens the immune system right and so tb was really just having an even greater impact on people when they had it Um, people were getting sicker and dying and there there was no medicine and so this lends itself to kind of trying to kind of look at the past and what was different and certainly there were people saying, well, the government did a better job in the past, but there was a lot of blaming of particular groups, like women and, and youth in particular. Mm-hmm. Women aren't following the rules. Youth aren't listening to their their elders, mm-hmm. and they're doing and they're drinking too much, having too much kind of promiscuous sex, and they're exposing them and us to it. And what I'm really interested in, I mean, one is the harm that we see this, we're seeing this in COVID-19 for sure, but how the notion of childhood figures into this blame, right? Mm. Where children as victims of of women who did not follow the rules or Mm. of youth, which, you know, could be the parents, right? Mm. Because youth is a category that can extend quite long or how youth are doing things that are affecting our children. I've been fascinated how childhood is used in these ways to cast blame and then how that enters into relationships as well. I talk in the book about one woman who was living with her, Munyongo, who was living with her young daughter, Serafina, and how she didn't want people to blame her or think of her differently. And she knew that she was going to die. I mean, obviously she didn't want to, but she was preparing to die and she was preparing her daughter for what would happen after that. And she saw in her family, her sister who had died and how the children were very much associated with her sisters kind of assumed the moral discourse about her sister. And she wanted to protect her daughter from that. And so she isolated herself and and her child from care from the family because she didn't want them to have these ideas that she couldn't that she had done something to cause her death Mm. she didn't want those to map on to her her daughter who would be associated as like an AIDS orphan and so she did all kinds of things to counteract that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
to someone who's already vulnerable, kind of taking an agentive act to try to separate herself, but which is also simultaneously cutting her off from sources of support that she may have otherwise been able to access. Yeah. I'm also wondering about how these insights about this kind of moral language and how it's shaping the way that people are engaging with the illness and with care for the illness, how that might relate to what we're seeing in, with COVID-19. So some, in some cases, it's kind of explicit, like you mentioned, these, um, the impact that it has on racial minorities and the high rates of infection. We see a lot of moral language focused on, on well, why do immigrants and Black people get, the, get COVID-19 more often, etc.? But we also see more kind of subtle moral discourses related to just putting unequal pressure on people. Um, So I'm thinking about like these kind of motivational pressure, like you didn't ever lack the time, you lacked the discipline that are just completely overlooking the fact that lockdown is being experienced by people in drastically different ways. So parents clearly are not bored staring at the walls like some of of their things that we're seeing on Facebook are saying. And, you know, the difference, we've also seen things about the differences between the way that men and women are, are forced to deal with this. So I don't know if you had any thoughts about the kind of moral language about disease and how that's shaping our experiences of the current pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This idea of being bored. When can I be bored? (laughs) Um, And the the writing your novel. Yeah. I, I think we're all, expecting ourselves to be super agents these days. Yeah. We can get work done, teach our children, we can care from afar for our parents and others and 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 mm. um and even in even as like we can react to these kind of King Lear and quarantine or get the novel right. done. Yeah. Um, we still put those pressures on ourselves. I think that's part of the reason why I and others I know love that genre of writing that's coming out in this of like against productivity and against doing a yeah. good job of putting our classes online yeah. or against doing a good job of homeschooling as much as that's the counter reaction, but, but it's so ingrained. As you said, I talk a lot in my work about children's agency, but I also talk against the notion of seeing children as, as super agents. I really see this idea of a super agent into person or child as like this cartoon character in a superhero case, which <laughs> like I kind of see myself trying to enact these days. Mm-hmm. Kind of when we kind of as researchers, as people, write about and think about agency in ways that assumes we're able to overcome our constraint and vulnerability through our individual action. I think there's a lot of pressure in the U.S. really to do this with the discourses and stuff. But I guess my argument for children extends to this this context too. It's, It's really an argument to attend to the broader social, political, and economic processes that structure our lives. Mm -hmm. I think we really need to keep those in view to help us release our guilt, but like, but that's not enough. <laughs> I think we also need to direct our anger, not at individuals or in ourselves, to, but to systems and structures that have to have to change. They yeah, have to change. Yeah. And, and for those of us who have some power, whatever power that may be, to put pressures to get systematic system level changes rather right. than focusing on, I don't know, individual level behavior change is like the answer to this of getting yeah. a more comfortable workspace or kind of here's an app that will help your child. Right. I get really frustrated at those. And of course I want to attain some control and, but I'm sick of the advice because it's just ignoring that this is an impossible situation mm-hmm. for us to work through. And um, it's impossible for certain people more than others. Yeah. And it, 
it gets back to the gender inequities and stuff that we're seeing and the racial disparities we're seeing too, where like some people have more control than others and yeah. kind of the, the moral discourses of that are mapped onto people who don't as being kind of lazy or right. not, not being directed enough, not being disciplined enough in their ability to overcome this. Right. And calls for discipline are reinforcing those inequities. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and erasing the, the, the inequities that need to, to change right. yeah. for the good of all of us. Mm-hmm. So the last theme I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned earlier, and it's the place of food and eating in kids' experiences of infectious disease. So my work focuses on food sharing as this place where kids reckon with and shape economic moralities. And I was drawn to the way that you portray food as both a fruitful means of providing care, which you mentioned with the imaginal caring, but it's also this fraught moment with, especially with infectious disease, that can kind of upend our sense of normalcy. So I wondered both about Zambia and how this kind of played out in terms of the way Ways that people are eating with when you have a sick parent, etc. And also how we can bring this to bear on the experiences that families are suddenly having of being together so much of the time, preparing more meals, and the kinds of tensions that might be coming out at mealtime. It's such a big question. Food, yeah. <laughs> Food is big during illness, right? I mean, we think of chicken soup and stuff like that. Right. Uh, I had this other strand of my research that I never really followed through or published on, which was influenced by some of my biological anthropology mentors like Bill Leonard. I was collecting data on changes in children's weight and body fat Mm. throughout uh, the time that the person was sick with TB. And also I had um, other children in the study who were living in households where no one was sick with TB, though that really fell apart because TB was just so present Mm. in the area. But what that was showing on a very small scale was that children were actually faring better during the illness. And I would argue that that was because there was more food coming into the house. There was more money from the household being used on food. And Mm. so you're saying that like their body weight and their nutritional level was better when there was someone in their house with disease. Okay. Interesting. It's almost counterintuitive. And, and this is sort of why I, it's such a small scale. It's, It's why I never really put it out there, but I think it's worth reckoning with that, you know, people were spending more money on food and as I think a way of giving care to children, children were offered that food for. And and so, you know, I think about it, the food here, I mean, it's an interesting kind of research question because the people who live in under one shelter don't always, aren't always equivalent of like a household, right? There's not always sharing and participating in meals. There's exclusions. And I would say that a lot of stuff about the inequities now could be seen through food, mm-hmm. the lens of food as mm-hmm. well. Shopping too, like who's who's responsible for the shopping? Well, that brings me to my final question. It's um, how is working in the context of infectious disease shaped the way that you're experiencing coronavirus, the way that you move through life in lockdown and the ways that you try to protect yourself and your family? First, in thinking about that question and in having done the research I did, I would say that it makes me think about my enormous privilege. Mm. 
there are a few of us who can work from home and can buy enough food, who have running water. You know, it just, there's so many things that I'm able to do that are within my control. And I know that that's not the experience of even many people in my city. I've kept my job. I don't have to go out and work in a grocery store to pay my bills. So I think one is it makes me think about my privilege. It also really, I mean, it makes me think about my, all of our vulnerability too. I was getting really kind of panicky about uh, what was going on before any of the stay-at-home orders when we were still working, thinking, kind of just envisioning what was going to happen in a way that certainly I think was shaped by my experience of watching mm-hmm. epidemics play out and watching people die and knowing that that's a real possibility and seeing it hitting so close to home, mm-hmm. knowing that that we're all vulnerable, especially in the early days before stay at home, I was really just like trying to micromanage my family. Right. Really. I was like asking my husband if he was washing his hands like, <laughs> constantly and, uh, and making sure my son was washing his hands constantly and really trying to manage where we were going. Yeah. That took a lot of energy. I guess the other thing I'd say is I keep looking at the systems and structures that are failing us and trying to remind myself of that, even as I feel I'm personally failing at everything I'm doing. <laughs> right. I, and I imagine there's so many other ways that it's affected me that I can't even figure out at the moment. Yeah that I'm not, I won't even be aware of perhaps until it's all over. This is such a weird time to be living. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jean, for being here and for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Anthropod. If you go to our website at colanth.org, We have links to the articles mentioned in the episode, as well as the drawings that Jean mentioned. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we're sending our best to you and your families at this incredibly 